RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Freedom of speech in New Zealand is under fire. Dissent gets burned. Poor written questions by people with the mandate to ask them go unanswered. Independent media organisations deplatformed. A disparity of information has driven a wedge between families, friends and communities, creating a divide not seen since the Springbok tour over 40 years ago. The opening lines of the documentary Silenced by Samantha Blanchard. I'll be talking with Samantha about her documentary, a story focused on freedom of speech. The disparity of information and the demonisation of people who upheld freedom of choice over the last few years has totally changed New Zealand, says Blanchard. Like many others, plenty of my personal relationships have been seriously impacted during that time. Silenced is my response to this and was born out of necessity. It's mainly for those that have been alienated from one another. I hope it helps their relationships to heal. Written, directed and produced by Samantha Blanchard of Candlelight Productions in New Zealand. You may have seen this mentioned. You may have caught a glimpse of um, uh, people talking about it, a bit of marketing, because the documentary is out now uh, and I will be watching it tonight on Facebook. And Samantha Blanchard joins me now at Reality Check Radio to talk about her production, the story behind it and what she hopes to achieve with it. And Samantha, thank you for giving us some time to come on RCR and talk about Silenced. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, nice to have you. And if we if if we followed that title, there wouldn't be much of an interview. <laughs> <laughs> True. It's, it's not- over now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know it's not easy to make these productions because I- I've made them uh, um, before. And if you don't have the grunt of, you know, big money behind you and uh, channels um, commissioning um, the, the production, you know, you really have to do it yourself and you have to put in a huge effort. So thank you for doing that. Now, what made you decide to make this documentary? I, I, I would suspect it's an obvious answer, but I got to ask, why did you feel you had to do it? Hmm. Um, I, the, the right of reply for me was not being fulfilled um, when I saw the steady stream of apparently one-sided information coming through at the beginning of last year um, around the time of the protest, around um, the the time of the mandates. And um, I have this skill set. I, I studied journalism 15 years ago or so. I, I hadn't worked in it for a while, although I am writing for a little newspaper here, which is um, covering similar issues to what Silence looks at. Um, but this right of reply felt for me like a responsibility. And it, I had, I'd had it in the back of my mind since leaving the industry several years ago that the only way that I would return to journalism is in a long-form way, i.e. in a documentary style or perhaps like a you know, radio program or something. But um, documentary definitely appealed to me, short-form news, four sentences on for, for a radio bulletin no longer appealed to me. So it was it was kind of the seed was there before the issue came. And then the issue came and I saw how it hurt my community. I saw how it I felt how it hurt my family. And uh, I saw the stories coming out and I knew I wanted to make it. And I didn't even know what I was making until I started interviewing. And it was from the interviews that it became clear. Um, where the story was, particularly with Peter Williams. He hadn't shared his story yet at the time of interview. And um, the other big part about it is um, it, it definitely has an intention of wanting to unite New Zealand once again and to pull back from that polarised debate of so-called pro and anti-vax back to this um, united um, uh basis from which we where we must stand on freedom of speech that has not been upheld the last couple of years and I think most listeners here will probably be aware of that but we need to increasingly make people aware of that so this was 
my attempt to get in on the chorus of other people who are already doing fantastic work and add to it with some fresh voices um, and in particular um, reasonable voices, reasonable Kiwis with reasonable questions. That was kind of the underlying mantra of the entire project. That word reasonable is interesting. I've heard um, that mentioned before, kind of in this context, as if anything too out there, just it's just not acceptable. It can't be taken in. I don't know. It, it, it just won't go in to, well, the average person. They need to, it needs to be packaged in a very reasonable way, which is kind of a compromise because, hey, you're grown up, <laughs> you know, take the hits yeah. um, um, that, that you might deserve to take. But do you think that's the only way to, to speak? And I, I don't even want to say to that side because I hate the, thought of sides but i mean it's tragic but to be reasonable is it possible to to lose the punch sounding so reasonable yeah there's the there's that idea that it might be too soft or too mild and um and perhaps but uh unfortunately uh some factions of the other side um have painted us as extreme so it's the opposite of reasonable. So we have to, uh, I think we we have to show that we're, we're not extremists, that we are reasonable, that we do have reasonable questions. And yes, there are some extreme points to be made. But first, we've, I think if we're going, to, you know, those extreme points um, are, are just going to be too hard for, quote again, the other side to take. So we have to start somewhere and start softly and gently. And certainly a lot of the feedback that I've had and one of the aims of this documentary was to go softly and go gently. Um, We don't want to scare anyone, although it is still shocking for some people. Um, It's really set out in a soft, reasonable and gentle way. Um, But it's kind of like a whole package where they get quite a a well-rounded, hopefully, um, presentation of what's gone on the last couple of years, but yes, in a reasonable, quite soft and gentle way. It's not um, out the gate. <laughs> it's um, it's, and, and I think what comes with reasonability is something that's very important these days, and that's credibility, especially um, on this side of the coin. Um, because again, just like the opposite of reasonable is extreme, and that's how it's been painted. Similarly, with this credible information that we have to present, this is being portrayed as misinformation. Um, and as Peter McCullough and the one, and I heard your interview this morning, Paul, um, with Peter McCullough, thank you. Um, and he said the same quote that I've used in the documentary itself, and that is that misinformation is a propaganda term, he says, mm. that there are, there's no such thing as misinformation in science, that there's data and there's two uh, ways of looking at it, two or more ways of looking at it. So I think we need, we need that reminder and, um, yeah, to, to recognise that there's reasonable voices with reasonable questions and credible information to impart. I want to go through um, the people who appear in the doco in a moment. You mentioned, uh, what, about 15 years ago you got into journalism. Uh, this is a question I like to, because I'm actually not a journalist. I, I consider myself an honorary journalist, involuntary, sure. <laughs> just right. for, from the time kicking around. So I, I, I kind of know the principles, but I never had to go out and interview people in the street and do all that sort of stuff to qualify. Back in the day when it wasn't a university thing. Anyway, enough of yeah. that. What has happened, Samantha, to journalism? When, when did the, when did the, the train wreck occur, do you think? Oh, um, I think it's been happening happening progressively since I was in in the industry. Maybe maybe even before that. I John Pill just says he called it out in the nineties. Wow. Um, the the kind of southern direction of of journalism. Because um, because wait on you mentioned um, the you know the 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 news bite kind of format right the. Almost the length of, and in fact, and in fact, I know with the morning report program now they see interviews and pieces like song length. You know, it's like 
instead of playing yeah. songs, you're playing spoken pieces. Do you think that has sort of broken the back of journalism, that sort of endless Thanks. cycle of sound bites that has no resolution, no, um, you know, you know no quantity of information, etc. It's yeah. part of it, definitely part of it. Like, um, case in point, look, um, and it's it's related to that, but slightly different. Our prime time uh, television slots at seven o'clock used to be devoted to current affairs you know where those news clips which are all of one minute 30 seconds on on one news and news hub though the the top issues of the day would be on at seven o'clock in a live interview format where people are held held to account in front of a watchful national audience remember john campbell and before that paul holmes like i grew up watching that lindsay perigo yeah exactly and um, and now you look at those seven o'clock slots and we've got this magazine-style trollop. I mean, I don't even know. I don't watch seven o'clock. <laughs> but now, where's 2020 gone? Where's 60 Minutes? Perhaps they're still on. I don't even know. Um, but we have, uh, we've got, we do have Q&A with Jack Tame on, on Sundays, but the, the staple daily current affairs, long form, um, where an interview would be live, so they so if they slip up, they slip up. That's fine, um, but it's held live, and you've got minutes to go into um, into an issue, and not just this one minute thirty. The, these sound bites. This is one way that journalism has gone south. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Needs to be pulled back. Gosh, those were the good old days. All right. So, how did you decide? Um, who to um, include in this documentary? You've got Peter Williams, you've got Jody Brunning, uh, Dr. Anne O'Reilly. Obviously, I'm familiar with Peter Williams and his story, and yeah. I've interviewed Jody Brunning uh, before, and she she had some great revelations on on a lot of the funding that went into the COVID effort. So let's start with Peter. You said he hadn't at the time of interview he hadn't told his story, right? And that that is no. the radio live media work story. Yeah, that's right. So um, for the little newspaper that I work for here where I live, I was covering a story on Three Waters and I wanted to speak to Peter Williams. And I spoke to him first about Three Waters, but I couldn't wait to ask him why he left the media. And uh, his story came out and I wrote a little bit about it, but I mostly wanted to keep it for something on camera. And I emailed him with a proposal and initially he wasn't enthusiastic he told me when he phoned me but he phoned me from my area he was visiting the top of the south reframing a picture i might add reframing <laughs> he was reframing a picture which i find to be quite um in your area how, how, yeah, how handy. Where I live, which is at the top of the south now obviously peter's from down in central otago so a considerable distance and i was prepared to travel down there but i sort of said, thought well Never mind your enthusiasm. I think it's um, it's uh, it's too coincidental for you to be in my area and for us not to meet with a camera and just do this and see how we go. Um, so, you know, when things like that happen, you kind of know you're on the right track. <laughs> and so, I, I know you're talking about Peter, but I, I'm betting that there were more than one m moments like that yeah. that you've experienced. Right? Would I be right in saying that? Yes. In this Anyway, the next yeah. one along the line was initially because I had you asked, you know, why did I pick these three people? And when yeah. I thought about censorship and where freedom of speech had really been compromised, it was, you know, it really is across the board. There's no, um, there's no one um, thoroughfare of censorship here. It's several subtle streams, and I see them in media. I see them in academia, and I see them in medicine. So I, I wanted one person from each of these realms. And the one that I really wanted for academia initially was actually Dr. Simon Thornley, who is the epidemiologist from Auckland University, who did incredible work uh, in the first couple of years of this ordeal with COVID Plan B. The website's still uploaded and it is busting at the seams with fully referenced information. Mm. And... Um, Dr. Thornley and I had a coffee in Auckland when I was visiting for something else. 
And I actually chickened out of asking him for an interview there and then and flew home that night and regretted it the whole way home. I thought, why didn't I do this? I'm going to have to get him down to where I live now and or do something. And the plane got turned back at Nelson. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> and we flew all the way back to Auckland. I was with my mum. Incredible. Mom. And we had to spend the weekend in Auckland because there were no more flights back down to Nelson due to you weather. couldn't write the script, huh? <laughs> so uh, my mum my was my cameraman. And uh, on the Sunday, we interviewed Dr. Thornley. However... Uh, that interview was under an agreement of embargo until he felt comfortable um, right. to speak out. And, of course, that day would never come, which um, um, yeah. which could have been viewed as a setback. And, of course, I'd love Dr. Thornley's voice to be out there at any stage, but particularly now to look at to look back on his research and, and compare notes with what's gone down since. But fortunately... Um, I couldn't wait to speak to Jody Jody Brunning after reading some of her work uh, on Talking Risk, her amazing blog, an incredibly deep analysis of what's been going on the last few years. I find her work amazing. And when Simon finally pulled out, I knew who I was going to. And she was able to look at Dr. Thornley's work and speak to his oh, inter- interpreter. So it's ca- and, kind of like having him there without him being being exactly. There. Yeah, we have we can we can we can look at look on it as a as a third party and speak to um, why that subtle censorship of his voice is devastating for um, open scientific. But, but that was his choice, right? That was his choice. It's not necessarily his choice. It was legal advice that he took to stay quiet. If it was his choice without outside influences, which we can't necessarily go into, then he would have, he'd love to be able to talk out, speak out, I'm sure, because so much of his. So he was preserving things that needed to be preserved, preserved. like many people had felt forced to do or had to do. Exactly. Anyway, um, so you got Peter there covering the media, and he um, he spoke out, and um, I think uh, he says that he was just kind of doing the normal job that you would do in that situation, and and didn't even really see it as any any big deal. Cover both sides, talk to the appropriate people, um, he, get it out there. People listen; they make of it what they will, kind of thing. And he was, was a talkback host. It was September 2021. Everyone was talking about the rollout of the vaccine. That was hot on the lips of everyone. It didn't matter which side you were on. I mean, okay, there were some people who didn't care and they just went along with it and did it and they were quite happy to. And fair enough, it's fine. But for a lot of New Zealand, that this was the spearhead of our effort against COVID. We were locked. The country was closed. And according to the government, we all got vaccinated then we'd open up again, but some people didn't want to. It's a huge ethical dilemma. We don't need to go over it again. But at the time, it was so pertinent and he wasn't allowed to explore all of the sides. With all his experience, all his credibility, years and years in the business. Yeah. um, And without sort of giving away too much, uh, what form did that pressure on him take? Was it subtle, or was it? I mean, in the end, it, he left. He decided to to go before they they pushed him. I think. But mm. um, um, how, how does he sort of lay out the pressure that came upon him without you know giving away too much because people need to watch it? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's I think the longest clip featuring featured in the documentary is Peter explaining exactly how that conversation unfolded and with whom. Um. Mm. And does so, it follow the money? It was all about the money. It must have been for for media works. The words within that conversation were the financial considerations for the company had to be, um, or the financial implications for the company had to be considered uh, by company management when Peter was talking down this line that was um, apparently against those. And it also happened to be against the government narrative. And, of course, this was the time not just of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, but also of gigantic advertising dollars, a real double down of, of money passing between those two organisations. Um, 
but Peter t- does detail that and, um, you know, I really hand it to him for walking out on, on those terms because. Well, no one else did, did they? <laughs> no, that's right. I can't think of anyone else who did. No. And you no, had a whole, I'm you had, aware you had a whole of bunch of them cheerleading away. And even yeah. inje- celebrities turning up injecting people in car parks, I think, too. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that'll be uh, people will be interested to hear Peter's comments. Mm-hmm. So then we move to Jody Brunning. And, yeah, I mean, I've had experience of her analysis and uh, the work that she's done, and I mentioned it before, around um, some of the funding, particularly of the, um, the COVID advertising, et cetera, and it coming out of the Prime Minister's department so she must have had a really amazing view of the landscape yeah that's right for her to and by now at this point it has moved on from the epidemiology to the sociology you know this has moved on to a deep societal problem it's no longer we're just battling a virus we've we've got deep societal issues now and divides happening and i really wanted her commentary on that but her, the research that she did for her master's is perfect. The fact that she's examined how funding for science and technology goes through Crown Research Institutes, which then pick or prioritise projects which are going to be have some kind of commercial or economic benefit. Moreover, those that perhaps are going are looking at safety and ethics. Now, in a time of such rapidly developing technology, things like artificial intelligence, um, and yeah, vaccines, and all sorts of things um, that are beyond me, we still need safety and ethics to be considered in my view, and certainly in Jody's view. And um, her research shows that perhaps if we are to steward science and technology forward safely and ethically, then our funding models perhaps need to be looked at. Um, and it's interesting. Um, I was speaking with Amy Benjamin the other day, uh, who used to also work at she's public law at Auckland University, or used to be. And her comment was, it's very interesting that, that the documentary um, uh, takes those who are studying and makes them the studied. We look at the academics and 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 their and the mechanisms of how they are funded, and uh, it's it's uh, it's important that we look at that and see that. And Jody's work is is very important on this front. She's they wouldn't like to be the studied, would they? <laughs> I don't imagine so. <laughs> no. yeah, yeah, I read uh, recently someone sent me a link, and you know, even uh, Michael Baker and what he's involved in through the University of Otago is in the multiple tens of millions wow. of funding there. And and you can start to see why people do certain things, right? I mean, that, that, that threatens so much. So you were talking to her from the um, angle that um, this, the, the way that all the science work is done, it's funded, is effectively a tool for silencing. Yes, because it doesn't make, it's not a safe environment for you to be calling out unethical procedures. Uh, it's not a safe environment for academic or academics to be speaking out against a government narrative or measures um, which may be irregular, even if they are irregular, because that's compromising their potential future research and uh, their potential future employment. Yeah, um, you'd think ethics would really apply in those fields just naturally. It's hard to imagine people suspending that kind of part of their moral compass so easily. Yeah, and I I guess... What um, we need to add to the equation there is the amount of fear that was being pumped out into our society at that point as well. There was so much hysteria. And in that case, I think um, we are compromised 
you know, the nervous system goes into a different state. And Did yours? Um, did mine. From time to time, I've got pretty trusty practices to keep it in check, but um, for sure I've experienced, um, I have experienced feelings of despair. For- no, but were you scared, you know, the fear of the, the propaganda fear, generated fear, um, did that get to you at all? It got to a lot of people. Did it get to you? No, of course not. Why, why do you think? Why did the propaganda fear not get to me? It was yeah, more so where it that got it, to so many others. Well, the last three years really reignited my research, which is trained, which I got from journalism school. And I was digging from 2020 in particular into repurposed drugs and their um, and their potential and um, efficacy against this disease. So I knew I knew that it could be treated. I also knew that I'm young and healthy. Uh, it's another point made in the documentary that um, young and healthy people really had no reason to worry. And uh, I was absolutely buoyed by that. I also live in a semi-rural place and um, I absolutely trust my immune system wholeheartedly. Um, so no, I was never, never afraid. I was more, uh, there was perhaps more fear in me of how that was affecting other people, um, you know, and, and what fear can really drive people to, to think or do and, um, you know, to drive them into this divide, for example, which it's crazy to me that that has resulted from the last few years. Yeah, well, it didn't didn't get to me either. And I was um, doing RNZ News at the time, blurting it out to everybody, and, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, scaring them. Um, yeah, sorry. Well. <laughs> um, it was what it was at the time. I, I'm just interested that some, you know, some just, uh, well, it's not that they weren't affected by it, but they just didn't buy it. And, and we're not talking about rocket scientists people here. We're talking, you know, I've got just average, a few average mates who, you know, they were like me, and they're nothing special. Yeah. They just think this, this sounds like BS, actually, yeah. not going to do it. But but there was the complete opposite of that. So I'm uh, just staying with uh, Jody's work, and, and, and she's in the doco. So uh, do you get from what she says that there needs to be some kind of reinvention of the whole structure of doing science in New Zealand? Uh, it doesn't sound fit for purpose anymore the way you're talking and, and what I know already. What do you think about that? Jody says that there needs to be, and in fact, I'm glad you asked because we, you know, my interview with Jody was nearly three hours long and of course we couldn't use it all. But one of the things that she said, which doesn't, which is not in the documentary is that we actually need funding, purposeful funding to look after the safety and ethics of stewarding technology and science forward safely. We need a government department or um, or a few, uh, some amount of funding that that requires to make sure all these checks and balances are in place. And uh, yes, perhaps that would um, affect the speed with which we go forward with our science and technology. Uh, but I don't know anyone that wouldn't agree that that needs to be done safely and safely and ethically. Um, that's the change that I think that we need to see. Um, and you know, I think the, the the example that she used during the interview is that you know over over four hundred million dollars were found to purchase the booster. And this is going back a little bit. It's not the bivalent booster which we're talking about now I don't know how much has been spent on that but nearly half a million dollars on one booster I think nearly half a million dollars could be spent on that outfit something that watches out for stewarding science and technology forward safely and ethically or a bioethics panel which was never convened and Jody speaks to that again in the documentary bioethics has always been important and is absolutely relevant to the last few years, yet was neglected. Um, so we need we need government funding directed at this. That was four hundred million. Did you say over four hundred? I think it was four hundred and thirty million dollars on 
the booster, the, the initial booster program after the first two jabs. Yeah, they can't find money for hospitals, can't find money for the homeless, can't build new homes, can't um, uh, improve the people's uh, you know everyday lives. It goes on and on. There's never money for that. Pharmax can never find enough. Yet, yeah. Hey, here's hey. We didn't realize we had 400 million kicking around for yeah for this. Just exactly. Just, just saying. And another another point on that. You know, what, imagine I don't imagine that it would be that much to have added a public health campaign to all of that uh, propaganda in the last few years. Imagine. And I would have been so on board for this if it were the case. Imagine if the team of five million were encouraged to get healthy together. We had nearly two years free of the virus. We had nearly two years. That means of perhaps we could have subsidised fruit and vegetables, although that's surplus to what I'm talking about. What if the team of five million got healthy? What if we were we could see each other out on the beaches? You know, really reinforcing our immune systems so that we could take this thing on with healthy bodies. Not only would that have helped us to uh, weather the the threat of the virus itself, but we would generally feel better. Our population would be more united, would generally be healthy, and would generally be happier because that's what health equals. There was so much potential there lost, and it wouldn't have taken $400 million to do that. And the health system would have been far less pressured right now than it is if we had a healthy population. Yeah, I mean, the answer, the obvious answer to that is that uh, they weren't interested in people's health. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, all the evidence points that way, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Not at all. So why would you not be interested in people's health when there's a so-called health emergency? And this is where you start to question intent and motive and it's hard not to eliminate that they really wanted people to suffer. Yeah. And I try, you know what, this is where the whole question of why, this is where we begin to theorize, right? And the old adage at journalism school was follow the money. It's easy to show and easy to, and this is what I hope that people will find the documentary does, is there's, we follow the money a bit. And, and at the very least, commercial interests were upheld. At the very least, people made big money. And I certainly hope, I mean, that's a, a, a definite, but I hope that's where it ends. I, 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 I have to say my own cognitive dissonance comes in here and I can't believe that a government would want us to suffer. Um, but, you know, maybe that's just me being naive. But all the evidence, and, I mean, you have to consider it. Um, it may not be, but you have to consider it because th- th- that's not the only thing. You know, yeah. the spending that money is not the only thing. There were all sorts of um um, stresses on people, right down to splitting up families. Um, yes. We've all got experience of it. Um, yes. Destroying kids' education, some of them, particularly the vulnerable kids at school who who needed routines every day, um, their lives were completely blown up. Um, and and we're getting on to the other um, person featured in your documentary. That's Dr. Anna Riley. And I've been talking with doctors and with uh, educators, and they were just thrown on the freaking trash heap, just like that. Their entire body of work meant nothing. How good they were in classrooms or in, in, in medical practices didn't mean anything, not one thing. Mm. Ignored. Well, more yeah. than that, just so disrespected. Yeah. I mean, that's not the word. But, I, again, you try and work out, well, how could you how could you go to that level if you weren't, if there wasn't something wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just getting, getting that rant off my, my chest, but, <laughs> but that never goes away. I, and I don't think I'm the only one. You, you search for answers, you search for motives because in the New Zealand that I understood and grew up in, that would never, ever have happened ever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So- it's wild. It's wild. And um, it's wild. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 it's, it's unfathomable to me, actually. I, 
as I say, I, I stop myself at the money almost. I can't, I just, I just can't. I, I am one of the ones that can't believe that our government would want to make us suffer. And I've seen, I've seen heaps of evidence. I've been reporting on it and I still can't believe that. However, it needs deeper investigation. And this is another part of the documentary. At the, at the end, we unpick the, the Royal Commission of Inquiry. Ah, the, and, limited, uh, the limited terms of ref, reference, Exactly, right? exactly. So there's a nice little piece where Jody and Anne go through what is left out of scope. And it shows quite clearly that even though we have a Royal Commission of Inquiry happening, that this is not being investigated and Kiwis need to demand that because of those reasons that you've just eliminated there in your little rant. <laughs> so so the, the terms that are missing will tell you everything? Basically, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's where we need the investigation. Um, so speaking of, of Anne O'Reilly, Dr Anne O'Reilly, in your um, documentary, in the documentary Silenced, I'm talking with Samantha Blanchard, Candlelight Productions, who is the um, director, writer, director, producer of the doc documentary. So it, it really seems like um, a lot of doctors particularly, but people in the health sector were put in a, a terrible position because here they had medical knowledge, <laughs> you know, they weren't kind of trying to piece it together like the average person that, you know, especially GPs who have seen lots of patients over many years, they build up a huge amount of experience and intuition into things. And here they are being told, well, they don't know what they're talking about and, and, and being threatened, you know, with um, being deregistered and, and, and demonized and made to look a, a crackpot. It must've been particularly hard for members of that community. I'm picking. Absolutely. They were shocked. They just, they, sure that Dr. O'Reilly never ever would have seen that her career would have ended like this. Um, and you know, she she is your classic family doctor. She's who you'd want to be your family doctor, you know. She's just a lovely lady. And she's just standing up for that sacred Hippocratic oath and advocating for her patients and wanting to know all of the information before she offers uh, a novel injectable and you know their, their fight her fight along with New Zealand doctors speaking out with science is is plain to see on their website those beautifully detailed letters with again reasonable questions so reasonable and so necessary to be asked and so unanswered still well, they have been answered, but certainly not by our, our authorities and certainly not through our mainstream media channels. And it's just, it's it's heartbreaking. But the work that she's doing now, I think, is very filling, if not uh, tiring for her. She's working with the World Council for Health, um, as well as New Zealand Doctors Speaking Without, with, uh, Out With Science, sorry, and yeah. uh, doing marvellous work. But, yeah, shocked, shocked and totally disrespected and devastated to lose trust in our medical authorities, including the Medical Council and the Royal New Zealand College of GPs. And they were aggressive too. I know I spoke to Matt Shelton. They weren't just like, oh, well, we're sorry we have to do this. You know, it's tough. They were aggressive mm. and nasty. Mm. Why? Yeah. I know you can't answer the, the – none of us can <laughs> yeah. answer the why, but it keeps coming up. These, yeah. are, these are, you know, smart people, reasonable, you know, accomplished uh, in their fields. Um, you know, the, the, where, where is, you know, where's the soul? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, that, the, the only thing that I can come up with there is they've got, they must have things to hide. They just. They, well, they, it's got to be that, right? It's yeah. got to be that. Yeah. And unfortunately, we can't make an official information request with, the medical council and their procedures we can't investigate their for example their connection with the federation of state medical boards which is an outfit in the us but we know that they are linked and i do suspect that, that this top-down culture that is very evident in medicine and has been ingrained for a long long time through the ministry of health into doctors here in new zealand 
you say there's no the, the soul appears to have um, have evaporated. Another another interview that I did with another doctor last year, she said that here in New Zealand, and she's not from here. She practiced for half her career um, overseas in the Americas first, but she said since coming here, she thinks that the art to doctoring has been removed by top-down control and almost automated um, decision-making or prescribing and, and diagnostic, di diagnostics of a patient. It's like everything's ticked. There's lots of boxes to tick as you, as you examine a patient. And uh, so I think, unfortunately, that, yeah, that soul or the art of, of what, it, what it is to be not just a doctor but a healer to work out who you've got in front of you and, and truly what, how can you help them is simply tick this box, tick this box and prescribe this pill. It's it's there already, and it's been it's been um, advanced upon by the way that this pandemic has been dealt with. Uh, I think I think what what I've come to realise in the various interviews with doctors that I've done over the last year is that you know most doctors who are operating the way that the medical system expects them to operate here in New Zealand is by checking those boxes and pushing patients through, doing what's expected of them, rather than um, spending the time, which they don't have, especially now with the medical system so under pressure, they don't have the time to really sit down and listen and examine things like their diet and lifestyle and, and potential root causes of, of their disease. Um, it's just throwing pills at them or vaccines. Yeah, 400 million kicking around. You could have done a few things in that space, but that perhaps explains why there was no effort to improve health because improving health is really not the aim anymore. It's it's just maintaining or controlling a yeah. bad set of symptoms indefinitely. Yeah. You know? yeah, this culture, this culture that's become evident, more and more evident to me over the last couple of years of of take the symptoms and treat the disease with, the array of pharmaceutical and pharmacological mm. options that has that is now medicine and it is medicine it's not called health people study medicine they don't study health mm. and mm. the um the wonderful thing about dr o'reilly is that halfway through her career she went back to her training and she went and studied functional medicine or integrative medicine which does exactly that it looks at the root cause of disease and looks at how a person might be living or what they've lived through, which may have caused where they've got to that, this point of disease and goes back to that to remedy that so that they become healthy. They don't just simply treat the symptoms. Hmm. And, no repeat business for that one. Yeah, exactly. Man, so that's, that's <laughs> the problem. They don't come back or, yeah. or only come back once. Hmm. Okay, so um, after going through this experience, making this production, it, it, it feels like the tentacles were – were kind of everywhere of this sort of, I don't know, um, what would you call it, organism or something like that. It, it, it sort of reached into every space of our lives. Would that be correct? You know, on one yeah. hand, trying to silence, but on the other hand, promoting any message that went with the narrative. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's everywhere. It's a it's it appears to be a giant group think, and it goes much deeper than what silenced portrays. As we've already talked about, it's it's a it's a gentle introduction, really. Um, but it does show that it's widespread. It does show, as you say, the tentacles. It's um, there are subtle streams of censorship everywhere, and not so subtle <laughs> reaches of propaganda, particularly um, if you rewind a little. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's systemic, um, which is is that's scary. Systemic is scary because it's, it's hard to unpick systemic. Yep, it is. But I'm I look. It's a hunch, um, but I'm fairly sure that there are certain. I I don't believe that the systems are necessarily. Well, I do believe that they're broken, but I don't believe that they're unable to be saved. I just think the right people need to be in those positions. But are they around? Are there enough of them? Because how do you think this is split? Is it down the middle? It's not 50-50, is it? I mean, 95% did a particular thing, which meant 
by whatever mechanism, whether it was coercion or really believing it, that they, they chose to do something. There were those in your small community, what, semi-rural, rural, semi-rural? Semi, yeah, fairly rural. Yeah. Okay, how would, it, how would it have broken down, you know, um, mm. I, uh, you know, on w- which side? Again, I don't like talking like that, but uh, I, I don't know I how know. else to express it. I don't know. It's because so that would speak to because... the numbers of people available to fix it, you know? I, you know what, I I think of it more as a spectrum. Um, and the, the way that I normally think of it is that we've got in three parts. Um, you've got, and I can't remember who came up with this philosophy, but um, there's somebody that coined this idea of splits when it comes to an ideology. And you've got 30 hardline, believe, 30%, sorry, of hardline believers at one end, another 30% at the other end who are, um, who are uh, hardline dissenters, you might say, and then a 40% in the middle who kind of could go either way, perhaps they don't really care that much, or they can kind of see both sides and they have these elements of diplomacy or, or um, you know, what have you, they, they, may, they may be the ones that were coerced, um, which may shunt them over, or, or they, they may just not care that much. I think there are certainly people out there that just, they just want it over and they just want to mind their own business and get on with it. Um, so that's how I think the the breakdown actually is, um, but it's difficult to say. Um, I'm sure it varies from place to place, and and I, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't think it's fifty fifty. I think I do still feel like um, uh, my I I feel like we're still more of a minority in terms of those who can see through it. Um, I think a lot more people are ignoring it now, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. Especially, actually, if um, if they've not looked at both sides until now, perhaps so much water's gone under the bridge. And where do you start with with looking at with poking your head over the other side of the fence? And in fact, that's that's who silence was made for. It's a gentle introduction. Um, to the other side of the fence, you know, for those who've had their questions but have been too scared to ask them, for those who've had their questions and that they're not feeling so good since they had their vaccine, for example, or for those that have had enough hindsight um, since the crazy time and now they're ready to look back and go, hmm, I wonder I wonder if all of that information was really just mis- misinformation or whether there was some truth there. Um, if, if you're that person, where the hell do you start when the when your mainstream channels haven't made it clear to you that there are outfits like NZD, SOS, and um, or if you've been turned off of Voices for Freedom because of the way that they've been portrayed in the media? Where do you start with trust and go, okay, I can, I've been told, you know, unless you've been told by someone, and that's why it's so important that we, we share um good information um, and hopefully documentaries like Silenced so that people can, and, and also when sharing it, share it with um, the reasoning as to why you're sharing it from your heart. Why why do you think it's important that New Zealanders see this? What, what stands out to you as to why people inform themselves and become more aware of these issues? Um, because... This, this is how we can um, we can gain that trust that I think people people really want to trust. Um, they want to know where they can put their trust safely at this point because it's been so thrown up in the air and it, it does feel a little bit freaky at times. But I've got lots of optimism, actually. Um, That's good. good to yeah. Hear. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially especially with... Um, launch the launch of a radio station like this it's super encouraging um and uh yeah it brings a little joy to me so well done you guys well thank you uh, <laughs> real nice of you to say that though i can't help thinking the guy who who who, who one of the major managers of this he's now got a knighthood um <laughs> one of the um uh, uh greatest promoters of it was the named the kiwi of the year a year ago um the guy who managed the whole thing is now the prime minister <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, it's Chris Hipkins. He was the COVID yeah, of course, of course. response manager. So, you know, um, we've got a bit of work to do yet, I suppose. Now, just quickly to to wind up, 
what sort of distribution do you have for this? Um, have you managed to get enough? I mean, you're not out of pocket, are you, from this exercise? I hope not. Nah. No, I mean, I, I live a pretty I live a pretty little life anyway, which I'm very happy with, but um, I'm not out of pocket. Um, You've been well supported? Oh, I've got like this little buy me a coffee um, thing on the on the end oh. of it. So you find the documentary, by the way, it's silenced.co.nz and people have been so beautifully generous. It's amazing seeing all the coffees come in. <laughs> so I like coffee, so it's great. <laughs> Um, and we were we we managed the project under twenty thousand dollars, which is amazing. Wow, um, that is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really good. I, I mean, like to be fair, um, the wonderful editor Pixie, who did the work that she did on it, she she's she could definitely do with a few coffees. <laughs> so <laughs> if anyone does appreciate the editing, then um, then we could pay her properly. You know what Warner Brothers would have paid her before she got mandated out of her scholarship there she's only 21 and she deserves her, her work is worthy of of proper payment um you know i kind of put her up and fed her at the same time as giving her you know a, a probably minimum wage or something so you know she deserves more and um and otherwise you know i've gotten by well i'm getting my coffees and um i'm happy i just what i really want is what I really want to see or hear about. If if there's anyone out there that has a story like this, then email us at info at silenced.co.nz. The stories that I'm looking for are if you are able to share this documentary with loved ones, friends or family who you've been embattled with over the last few years, if you're able to watch it with them or get some feedback from them, where you know perhaps it's been thought-provoking for them or perhaps it softens them or perhaps it allows you to have a conversation with them that you've not been able to have previously i want to hear about the breakthroughs i want to hear about us reaching quote unquote for lack of better words the other side um, for those that have not who've had their right to be informed i believe stolen from them for the last two or three years yeah, um, it's one way of giving it back. Yeah, or, or exactly. sort of returning a bit of it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I bet. I mean, that's that. Those reactions would be fantastic if you get them. Yeah. Well, like, I had one camera. actually. <laughs> I had one. I had a grandmother um, buy me a coffee, and she said that her granddaughter, sorry, her daughter, who had forbidden her to see her grandchildren during that Christmas of the mandates because she was unvaccinated. Her daughter flicked her silence and she said this was a really good watch. And the grandmother said that she can't wait to catch up with her next time she does. Oh. So that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. That's, that's really cool to hear. Yeah. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for doing the work because this does need to be done. This is really the only way, like I say, the, the, the system that normally supports this is not interested, ain't going to be there for you. You've done it. A great job. Uh, I hope a lot of people see it and I hope it creates those situations, those moments that you just talked about. And thank you for coming on and telling us about it, Samantha. We appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.